0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Kate Clifford Larson, author of the book Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. Kate, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark. It's nice to be here.
0: Well, it's nice to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Well, um, I'm a historian and a biographer specifically. Um, I uh, I actually have my MBA and I used to work for an investment bank before I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And I went back to school and got my master's and PhD in women's history and African-American history. And um, that is what I've been doing for the past 25 years. And I just love doing it every single day. I I feel fortunate to be a historian and be able to write and publish books about so much history that hasn't been recorded before. It's
0: obviously a great background to write about someone like Fannie Lou Hamer. What led you to undertake a biography of her?
1: Well, it actually started back um, in the 90s when I started my master's program at Simmons university in Boston. And I was taking an African American history course. I became very interested in Harriet Tubman at the time, uh, whose biography was the first book that I wrote. Um, and that's what my dissertation was at the University of New Hampshire. And um, I learned about Hamer during that time period. And she always stuck with me, like uh, Harriet Tubman stuck with me. I couldn't shake her. I still can't. So um, Hamer was the same way. But she stood behind Tubman, and I worked on other projects Um From uh, the early 2000s up until 2015, when the last book that I wrote came out on Rosemary Kennedy. And Hamer suddenly moved to the front of my brain instead of lurking in the back and, you know, just being part of my subconscious. And I decided, um, with the encouragement of my uh, literary agent, to look into her life and decide if it was time for me to, to. look into her biography and tackle that as my next subject. So I did, and I got hooked immediately. And I thought, well, I I really need to do this. She was calling to me, just like... um, Harriet Tubman had. And so I, I spent several years researching and um, interviewing and writing the biography. And what you have in Walk With Me is the product of all of that. And, and she does have other biographies that have been written since the 1990s uh, forward. But I just felt that I had a perspective and um, new sources to look at that might add to what we have known about her. And um, I was surprised actually at the amount of material that I was able to uncover about her life. And, um, and certainly her legacy is more powerful today than ever, I think.
0: I was thinking as I was, especially reading the the, the first couple of chapters, that this couldn't have been a, an easy book to research because while it, it, in in some ways Fannie Lou Hamer is still very much with us, there are people alive who uh, who who fought alongside her and who uh, you know campaigned for the issues and, and and who can you know who shared those memories with you. At the same time, there's so much about her early life that, as is so often the case uh, for for Hundreds of thousands of African Americans in, in mid-century America, they you don't have the records, you don't have a lot of the material, and and yet you uh, and to to try to reconstruct her life it, it was you know seemed like a a, a challenge that I, I thought you, you did a quite an admirable job doing. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us what we do know about Fannie Lou Hamer's early life and what it is that we can reconstruct from the context of you know life for. Uh, you know, people living in rural Mississippi in the 1930s and 1940s?
1: Oh, thank you for asking that question, because there's a lot, um, there's so much material that people think is not there, but it's actually there to reconstruct the life of marginalized people. Um, but life in Mississippi was incredibly difficult. Mississippi has the reputation of, Um, Or the record for being the most violent state in the nation. It holds the record for the most lynchings in the country. Um, And uh, the resistance of the white population to um, civil rights for African Americans has existed there since you know, slavery times, and the vigor with which they defended their white supremacy during, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer's lifetime was breathtaking to me. I, I, you know, I have to admit that I did not realize the depths of, mm-hmm. of hatred and and um, discrimination that went on there. Um, at the time. So for, for Hamer, she was born into a sharecropping family. Jim and Ella Townsend were uh, sharecroppers. And um, when Hamer was born, she was the 20th child in that family. And tragically, seven of her siblings had died before she was born. Um, Mississippi had a, a, a death rate for black children was one in four would die by the time they were five years old because of lack of access to health care, poor sanitary conditions, uh, Uh, poverty, lack of nutrition. And um, it was, you know, it was a struggle for for Black children to survive. But Hamer did survive. And um, her life with her family was very difficult. Um, The poverty that sharecroppers endured in years when the crops came in and they didn't get high enough prices, or the plantation owner that they um, sharecropped for, cheated them out of their uh, fair share at the end of the season. It was a very difficult life. Um, and so while that's a uh, hard history and um, it's the truth, I also want to you know, let people know that there were, there was great joy in Hamer's life at times as well. She grew up in a, um, a strict Baptist household. Her father was a part-time Baptist minister and, and she was a woman of tremendous spiritual grounding and deep faith. And, um, you know, she had a loving family and um, there were moments of great joy that she talked about and laughed about. And, and, um, but, you know, there's no sugarcoating the fact that life for black families, black sharecropping families in the Mississippi Delta was extremely difficult, very difficult.
0: I was thinking about the leverage that gave whites over blacks, and that's something that you elaborate upon later in the book when you talk about how, when uh, Hamer goes to register to vote, and how that she ends up getting, uh, uh, you know, thrown out of her out, out her lodgings by uh, because of it. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon uh, the kind of the, the the economic world, you know, and and, and how, and, and the ways in which. African-Americans were discriminated against in Mississippi, the restrictions they faced, and basically what it was that that Hamer ultimately was fighting against when she became a civil rights campaigner?
1: Um, Well, there there were lots of things that she fought against. Uh, One thing is um, half the population in Mississippi, you know, when she was growing up was Black, but only 5% of voters were black voters. There were onerous literacy tests, poll taxes to pay, and then um, if the clerk of the court decided that a black person had passed the test because it was up to the clerk's discretion, um, then trying to vote was another hurdle. At some polling stations, white supremacists would prevent black voters from entering and casting their vote. Some were threatened with violence, some endured violence in trying to vote. So it really was a a very difficult place for people to exercise that right. Um, And then, uh, you know, in the cotton fields, Hamer watched while the plantation bosses would cheat people out of um, the the proper weight of the their cotton, they would alter the weights that were used to weigh the bags of cotton that the pickers would fill. And at the end of the day, they would be weighed and the bosses would cheat them and say they only brought in 90 pounds instead of 100 pounds or whatever it was. And so Hamer observed that and the How people were fired from their jobs if they tried to register to vote or, you know, they couldn't talk back to any uh, white person or, you know, there was deep segregation and uh, domination in that community. So she grew up watching that and observing it and. Was frustrated by it. The housing was inadequate. Schools were not equal. Only twenty to twenty-one cents out of every dollar that went to education went to black schools. The rest went to white schools. So these were things that just existed. You know, the roads in towns that were in the black neighborhoods were not paved at the time. Only the roads in the white neighborhoods were paved. Um, you know public services ended uh, at the edge of a black community. So um, these were the things that she would end up uh, fighting against, as well as trying to change the laws surrounding uh, voting rights. And um, because that's what she endured.
0: What was it that led her to go from being a, you know, the the wife of a sharecropper, a, someone who, who uh, worked, you know, it, it, it you know in a variety of occupations to become a civil rights activist what 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 about uh, her life led her in that direction, which so many other people were, were oftentimes very hesitant to undertake.
1: Um, and that's a good point. A lot of people were hesitant or refused to be involved in civil rights in Mississippi because of the violence um, that they would in, in face if they participated in any sorts of civil rights activity. So um, she observed that, and, and of course, it was a caution to her to not get involved. Um, she had married a man by the name of Perry uh, Pap Hamer in 1944, and they struggled with infertility. She had um, several miscarriages and reportedly two stillbirths, which crushed her. She came from a big family and she wanted to have children with Pap. Uh, they did adopt two little girls from uh, local families who could not take care of the, the young babies, but she wanted to have children with Pap, and it turns out she had fibroid tumors. And in 1961, they were creating a lot of discomfort and pain for her. So, on the plantation where they were sharecroppers, uh, the W.D. Marlowe plantation outside of Ruleville in Sunflower County. Um, the plantation wife uh, said to Fanny Lou Hamer, why don't you go to Dr. Charles Doro Jr. in Ruleville, and he will remove the tumors, and then you might be able to get pregnant. So Hamer decided to do that, and she had the surgery. Uh, Charles Dr. Dara was a white doctor in the Ruleville Hospital. And so she had the surgery, she went home to recuperate. And the plantation cook reported to her that she'd overheard Mrs. Marlowe saying to a friend that uh, the doctor had sterilized Fannie Lou Hamer, and he never told Hamer, and she was crushed that this had been done to her without her permission and without her knowledge and it sent her into a deep depression. And she was filled with anger and hate and she struggled with her faith because she wanted to know why God would let that happen to her. Well, she pulled herself out of it and was determined that she wasn't going to let this happen to her again. She wasn't going to be mistreated again, but she didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to affect change. But she knew that she had to do something, and in August of 1962, a group of young people, civil rights workers that belonged to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which had been established in uh, a, a year before, um, the organization was called SNCC for short, had come to Ruleville, Mississippi, and had a meeting at Hamer's Church, and they wanted to talk about voter registration and they told people that it was their right to vote and that what Mississippi was doing was wrong. And these young people were there to help them pass that test. If they wanted to make, you know, that choice to do that and face the repercussions out of the 200 people that were at the meeting, Hamer was one of 18 that raised their hands and the next day they, they went and, um, uh, she had decided to take that first step towards making a difference in her life and the life of her community. Um, and that's where I see Fannie Lou Hamer, a reborn woman who came out of the depths of, of this depression and hatred to start a new life um, geared towards making a big difference in her life.
0: Now, your book is a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer, but in some ways, that is only part of what it is, because you interweave her life into the civil rights campaign that's taking place in Mississippi during that time. And you focus in particular upon this voter registration drive that, that SNCC was undertaking. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain why that was such an important goal and How Fannie Lou Hamer participated in it? Did she uh, focus upon registering others? Did she focus upon registering herself? And what sort of obstacles did she face in that process at that point?
1: So, um, SNCC arrived with a mission, excuse me, to go into communities and find out what the people in the community wanted not to impose their own views. These were a lot of well-educated young people that were coming from other places. And they were also to look for leaders in the community, not to lead the people themselves, but to find the leaders that live there that were part of the community. So um, they had learned from people in Mississippi that voting was a right that they were eager to have and that they view that as the only way to make change in Mississippi. And so that's what SNCC was hoping to do, to help people find ways to pass those tests. So when Hamer did go and take that test, um, when she arrived home that night, uh, her the plantation boss, uh, Mr. Marlowe, uh, arrived at their cabin, and he told Fannie Lou Hamer, you go and take that test and take it back. And she said, no, Mr. Marlowe, I went there to... Register to vote for myself, not for you. And he said, Well, if you don't do that, um, you know, there's going to be repercussions. And she, so she refused. And so he evicted her that night. He told her that they weren't ready for that in Mississippi. So, at that point, she had been. This what happened to her is what happened to others. They try to register vote, they lose their jobs. So um, Snick hired her because they knew they could see that she was already a leader in the community, which I talk about in the book how she evolved from this this poor child of a sharecropping family to be a leader in the community, and um, and as a woman that that was an incredible. Uh, point that I try to make that there there was something in really special about Fannie Lou Hamer, and Snick recognized it, so they hired her, and they started training her and giving her the resources and the paths towards. More expansive leadership in the community and in the fight for civil rights and voting rights, and across the South, voting rights was a problem. It wasn't just in Mississippi, although Mississippi seemed to be the most vicious about it and uh, most violent. Um, but in the South, it was a problem, and that's what SNCC was hoping to help move the needle forward and to get attention from the rest of the nation to say to see what was happening there. But it was slow going. But Hamer was determined. And with the help of those SNCC uh, young people, she was, she felt that she could make a difference. And um, she certainly did.
0: That was one of the points in your book that I thought was so interesting, was how you describe what SNCC is doing at the local level, and they have a lot of strengths, but they you know discovered that, that they lack that local connection conversely as you say in the book at one point they provide they, they, they base that, that Fanny Lou Hamer has certain strengths but there are areas where she uh, you know doesn't have the, the the background the the skills needed and, and Snick uh you know, provides that with, with with some of their team members and, and what you just what you're describing in that sense is, is the partnership that evolved between the two uh that you that family Hamer was was this you know fantastic local leader who evolved and grew uh during this period from in, in the early to mid 60s and, and that snick was there to uh to to support that and and, and to provide resources but they, that they wouldn't have been anywhere near as effective had she not been there
1: Exactly, exactly. And SNCC became involved with um, with other uh, people in Mississippi in different communities, different counties, and also with middle class, well-educated African-American activists. In, in different areas, particularly male activists in, in Mississippi. So Hamer was a little bit of an outlier um, and but she helped pave the way and more people became involved on the local level with SNCC to try to make changes in Mississippi and they did provide those resources and the interesting thing is she's at least 20 years older than many of the SNCC um, workers so they provided her the support and resources that she needed and and she provided inspiration to them. I mean they, the things that they said about her and the people that I interviewed when they were you know they were young SNCC workers at the time but even as people now in their 70s and 80s the way they talk about her still, that you could hear in their voices the awe and the amazement, the respect, the, the, the sheer um, uh, power of her life. And how it impacted them still just oozes out of them and so um, she really was was powerful in their eyes as well so she enriched their lives inspired them to keep doing the work that they were doing and she taught them about grassroots organizing and how important that was to support not only her but people in the community too.
0: I was wondering if you could elaborate upon some of her other activism during this period. I was thinking in particular about her time in Winona and how the uh, the, the, the the violence that she experienced there and, and the impact it had upon her life demonstrates that this was not just a, a, a threat or something that was abstract. It was something that was very real and inflicted upon her, despite the fact that she was a, a, a middle-aged woman who uh, you you would on the surface, not be seem to be a threat to these men in, in structures of power. What, what happened there? And, and, and how did that uh, shape her life?
1: Well, um, Hamer was coming back from a, um, a training course, a two week training course in South Carolina with a group of SNCC workers, and they had been traveling on, uh, you know, Continental Trailways buses, and along the way they had been making sure that all the bathrooms and, and terminal restaurants were integrated, which they were until they were on their way back and they reached Winona, Mississippi and they stopped at the interstate bus terminal there and tried to get served at the restaurant and tried to use the restrooms. They were denied, and then they were arrested by state police and local police officers um, and taken to the Winona Jail. And there they spent four days uh, in sheer terror, and they were brutally beaten. Hamer was sexually assaulted and um that she barely survived. I mean, she received injuries from that beating that she carried with her for the rest of her life. Um, and they, I, I, if it, it felt like they were particularly incensed by Hamer because she was older and all the others were so much younger, even though they were brutalized as well. But I think they looked at her as like, she should have known better. She'd been in Mississippi a long time. She knew her place and she had, you know, confronted them and stepped up to them, they believed. So she deserved to really be uh, singled out and brutalized. So, um, but what have she survived. And by the way, the title of my book, Walk With Me, comes from that moment um, in the jail, and she's trying to stay alive. She's going in and out of consciousness, and she asks her cellmate, another young SNCC worker, to sing uh, the gospel song, Walk With Me, Jesus. And they sing it. She sings it, and and it helps keep her alive. It keeps her motivated, and um, it was like her prayer. And so that's why I titled the book... Um, with that phrase, walk with me. Well, she does survive that uh, four days in jail and gets out. And other people would have gone home and hidden away or just shut down completely. But it, it was another moment, a turning point, a crossroads for her where she decided that they... She actually said, they've been trying to kill me my whole life. What difference does it make now? They're not going to stop me. And if they kill me, they're just going to bury me here. And so she redoubled her commitment and her efforts to bring change, civil rights to Mississippi. And um, and that is the woman that we end up seeing on the national stage, this fierce, talented leader that knew how to speak to an audience and to speak to a nation that everybody had to do better and be better and make change.
0: Now that's the Fannie Lou Hamer that many of us first see when we uh you know when we you know study the nineteen sixty four Democratic convention and the uh, credentialing of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. But and I must confess I didn't know this until I read your book that before then, she had run for Congress and yeah. that it was part of this campaign. I was, it, that's why I find fascinating is reading about this in the context of Winona. Not only does she redouble her efforts, she increases her profile, and mm-hmm. she does so in a way that is such an overt challenge. I mean, it's one thing to register to vote. It's another thing to try to take the reins of power away from the people who are, who are in these public
1: offices it is It is really remarkable that she puts herself out there even more, and she receives more attention not only from you know black communities and civil rights organizations, but from the white supremacist community that is very well organized. They have their secret, you know, sovereignty commission that's like their own private, uh, FBI and they have, you know, the citizens councils, which is like a white collar uh, clan, and they're spying on her and they're watching her, and they're, you know, it is very, very scary. But she helps found the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party as a party that truly represents Mississippians because it was more diverse. The all white Mississippi regular Democratic Party was all white people and um, they would not allow black people to vote. So this new party wanted to prove to the world that yes, African Americans wanted to vote because the white people were saying African Americans don't want to vote. And so, and she also wanted to show people how you can run for office. You can be bold. A woman could run for office, which I need to remind people back in the sixties, not too many people and women around the country were running for office. So she decides she's going to run for office too, which is, it is so remarkable that she does that and, um, So she runs in the, you know, in, in the primaries. she loses, but she is not deterred because it inspires people and they, she draws attention to voting rights and to um, the state of politics in Mississippi. And so other black Mississippians step up and, and try to register. It really, she is just brilliant and courageous and, um, and and filled with determination that she is going to make a difference and they're not going to they're not going to stop her until you know she's dead
0: and as you explained that run in 1964 is the springboard to what she tries to do with the MFDP in uh, Atlantic City i was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a bit upon what was going on there and why it became such a concern for no less a person than the president of the United States, and and what it was that, and what it said about the the, the what you know Hamer's goals were, and the the state of the civil rights movement at that point.
1: So um, Hamer and her colleagues in Mississippi knew that. Um, You know, the the President Johnson was in favor of civil rights legislation, and um, they wanted the world to to see that the the Southern states, Mississippi wasn't the only one, were trying to prevent any civil rights legislation from moving forward. So the Mississippi Black Mississippians wanted to support Johnson, and they wanted to represent all the people of Mississippi. So they determined they would challenge the seating of the all white Mississippi democratic delegation going to Atlantic city who were presumably going to vote for Johnson as the nominee for the presidency that November. And Hamer and her colleagues wanted to challenge their right to sit on the floor of the convention and vote. So the Credentials Committee is this committee that's part of the Democratic Party convention system where they take on and consider challenges like challenging the seating of delegates. And so they were uh, given the opportunity to argue their case in front of the Democratic um committee the credentials committee and th- Johnson, in the meantime, he's worried about the southern states, um, the Democratic parties in the southern states, because they were collectively, white Democrats were collectively angry about Johnson's preference for um, civil rights legislation. In fact, in the summer of 1964, he passed, he signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which infuriated southern states. So at the convention, he was worried about keeping that coalition of very racist, uh, conservative, democratic delegations in the party and voting for him because George Wallace of Alabama, if people remember the racist governor there, um, he was threatening to start a third party. That would threaten the 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 power of the Democratic Party across the country. So Johnson was delicately trying to balance all of of these different uh, delegations that had two diametrically opposed goals, and so he was worried about this challenge to the seating of um, the all white Mississippi delegation, even though he knew that the MFDP the Fannie Lou Hamer's party was right and that they deserved to be sitting on the floor, but he couldn't allow it.
0: So, uh, he, that's what, and see so there's this extraordinary intervention where, where, and he's also concerned because, you know, the convention's being nationally televised, right. he's trying to, he's not just having to worry about the southern states, he's having to worry about how the Democratic Party is going to appear to the rest of the nation at a time when there's this growing sympathy for civil rights. I mean, he's walking this line and you have Fannie Lou Hamer and the MFDP, you know, posing this very visible challenge to what mm-hmm. uh, Johnson uh, is which what's happening at the convention.
1: Right. Because the Republican Party was anti-civil rights. So there there wasn't any controversy going on with, with the Republican Party at the time. And in Mississippi, there was so much violence against um, these civil rights workers. They were conducting uh, Freedom Summer happened then. Then 850 young volunteers from around the country descended on Mississippi to help with voter registration and freedom schools and community centers and things like that. And the violence was tremendous in Mississippi. Three civil rights workers were killed, uh, Mickey Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and, and Jim Cheney. And um, so that had hit the national news. Their bodies had been found a couple of weeks before the convention. So there was a lot of attention uh, centered on Hamer's you know, new Democratic Party and what they were going to do. And protesters were coming from around the country. So Johnson was you know, very concerned about what was going to happen. but when Hamer got to the podium to argue her their challenge, um, she followed like Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists who spoke and they were fine and everything um, and NBC News was there covering the entire convention and all these side meetings live on TV all day long and there Hamer comes up and goes to the table to give her speech. She has no notes she just Speaks from the heart. She tells people about what happened in Winona. She tells them about how their homes are shot at, how they lose their jobs because they're trying to fight for equal rights and the, the ability to vote. She's so powerful that Johnson is in the White House watching this, and he's afraid. So he calls a press conference in the middle of her speech. NBC News pulls away from her speech to record him at the White House, and he stands up to the podium and says something to the effect of, I want to remind everybody that uh, President John F. Kennedy was shot nine months and six days ago, and he said it like two or three more sentences, and then he left. It was just enough... So that Hamer finished her speech. So when NBC returned to the credentials committee hearing room, she was stepping down. And Johnson thought he had like dodged a bullet, that it was, you know, few. But he didn't because that night NBC News replayed her entire speech to the nation, which was shocked. Thousands of telegrams flooded the White House, Congress, uh, Atlantic City. People saw a real person there that had was experiencing these horrors. And while the nation had watched these awful things happening that came on the news periodically, it was the power of Fannie Lou Hamer right there. Her voice just really struck a chord with white and black people across the country. And, um, That was the power of Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, unfortunately, uh, Johnson and Humphrey and the Democratic Party, they were still very concerned about the southern white Democratic parties fleeing. So they negotiated a deal where the MFDP got two non-voting seats. Hamer felt betrayed, angry, furious. Um, But Johnson, you know, he was an experienced negotiator. He needed to keep the party together in order to be elected November so he could carry through the rest of his civil rights legislation. And um, uh, she walked away from the convention you know, devastated in one respect. Um, And the Mississippi delegation, the all-white delegation ended up not being seated or they didn't seat themselves. They left the convention and later they all reported that they voted for um, the anti-civil rights Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater.
0: In some respects, that was the moment at which you know, Hamer's at the national stage. You, you, she, she was in on the meeting where you have all these, uh, you know, major civil rights leaders with, uh, United States Senator Hubert Humphrey, soon to be the, uh, vice presidential nominee, and and and, and the, the. I was thinking as I was reading that uh, uh, those pages about how you, the 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 journey she had undertaken to be to that point, and how you then talk about how you know what is set in motion there plays out in 1968 and 1972 by 1968 they're splitting the delegations. by 1972 you know there, there, there's you know the, the changes become uh you know more you know it, basically the, the changes are advanced but as you note that she she leaves uh frustrated and, and there's a sense in, in after that that the movement starts to you know Change in ways that that makes it very uncongenial. I was thinking about how you describe how Roy Wilkins was uncomfortable with the fact that you know she was working class, that she was not, you know, she that that she didn't you know necessarily have the greatest appearance. That you have uh, with uh, the changes in SNCC's leadership, how it's becoming more middle class, more uh, you know urban in its focus, and, and and that it and it's getting away from. Uh, what you know, Hamer really knows best, and, and and the concerns of you know rural blacks like 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 her,
1: right? And doing that research, it was such an eye opener for me to to read um, the the meeting minutes for the SNCC meetings. Hamer was not part of some of those meetings. Some of them were held without her being invited. And some of the young SNCC workers were becoming more militant. They were drifting towards, you know, the Black Power and Black Panther movement. And um, they were tired of the nonviolent protest uh, philosophy. And then they were complaining about her, that she was old and she was out of step and they were tired of her. It was time for them to move up and do things. And and it, I just found it very hurtful in some respects. And I understood it, you know, young people are that way. But she, you know, she understood how they felt. She knew that they wanted to be more, more empowered, but she didn't believe that violence was the way to do it. So you know, she they sort of left her behind, and the movement itself began to fracture in the mid to late '60s, and um, and so she focused more and more on grassroots organizing, what was happening in her community and in Mississippi. But you're right about, you know, the Democratic Party. Um, by 1968, all delegations had to be diverse, and then she insisted that by '72 that more women be involved in the Democratic Party leadership, and um, she. Had helped advance democratic platform um, uh, ideas about um, addressing food insecurity and housing insecurity and access to Medicare and low-cost Medicare and providing insurance to poor people and um, all sorts of you know, preschool education and uh, all these things that we're still fighting for, but she was there at the beginning demanding that the Democratic Party include these as goals for the nation as part of the party platform. And so she really deserves a lot of credit for that even though she did walk away from 1964 very disappointed and disillusioned but I also look at it as part of her naivete as a new political person on the national stage and everything was one way or no way and um, she fought for that and she had not learned about negotiating or she just didn't want to negotiate It was that was her style
0: I thought it also seemed in in her final years that that she was you, know, you know, that she was you know paying the price for all that she had sacrificed you described her her health wasn't very good uh she had suffered she suffered from uh, cancer uh she uh suffered from uh diabetes and of course she also suffered from the uh you know long-term effects of, of the beatings that she had undertaken at Winona and, and yet at the same time it's it's also it, it, it was satisfying to see that she was able to witness some of those changes, and 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 see that 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 her life did have a, a, a change for the better for her community at the end.
1: That's right. She did see a lot of change, a lot of change. And I, I, you know, it brought her great satisfaction, but she was never satisfied. She wanted more. She needed more. She knew that there was more to be done um, in this country, in Mississippi. And um, because that was her true focus was it ended up being her community. And she knew that if her community had needs, there were communities around the country just like hers that had needs that needed to be addressed as well. And it is, it was quite sad that she was quite, I mean, she died and she, in 1977, she was 59 years old to imagine if she had been able to live another 20 years. She had become very active in the black feminist movement or the feminist movement. She was part of the national council of Negro women. And also uh, she helped establish the national women's political caucus with Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm. I mean, she was really a powerful, powerful feminist conservative feminist, but a a powerful um, feminist at the time. And um, there's so much more that she could have been part of and contributed, but her health um, just felled her and kept her from fulfilling those dreams that she had.
0: I also can't help but think about how much her voice was missed as a working class uh, uh voice, which is, when when you have so much of that movement that you describe in, in in the seventies and eighties becoming so middle class and how it. You know, loses that connection that that she that authenticity that, that she provided uh, for for the civil rights movement in the nineteen sixties.
1: Absolutely, and it's interesting because some of the meetings um, that she attended, um, you could in the initial meetings you could see that they they the the people around the table the women were much better educated. Even the young black women were better educated than her, and she was a little bit sidelined. But her voice was so powerful, and she used it to great effect that she. Created change in those meetings, in those organizations. They would begin to listen to her. They would change the agendas because of what she wanted to talk about, what she felt they needed to address. And it was those working class um, issues that she felt plagued a big part of the country that the elite women were not paying enough attention to. So that was that was her gift. She could get people to listen and to change their minds and to pay attention.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: So I'm exploring several options. I haven't settled on anything in particular yet. Um, there are so many. I, you know, I love to write biographies about women in our, our historical past. There are so many. It's, you know, I feel fortunate. There are so many to choose from, but it takes time to settle on somebody that I I'm going to live with for you know a good four years researching and writing.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing uh, who your next subject is and to reading the book that it that results.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: Kate Clifford Larson, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you. You too. Bye.